Welcome back to Murder on Sex Island. Written and read by me, Joe Firestone. This is episode 6, where I'll be reading chapters 19 through 22. In the previous chapters, Luella had fake sex on TV with Phil, then she got drunk with George Stryker and collapsed, leaving his apartment. Chapter 19 I woke up on a couch in a living room that was not my couch and not my living room. I patted myself down and felt relieved to still have all my clothes on. I did a loose inventory. Two arms, check. Two legs, check. No visible bleeding, though my left arm felt tender. Had I wet my pants? No. Had I thrown up? There did seem to be evidence of this based on the bluish-white puddle on the floor in front of me. I checked my teeth. Those were somehow still in. Props to my beloved down-for-anything dentist, Dr. Frank. If you're ever in Staten Island and need a dentist, Dr. Michael Frank's your man. I reached up to check on the status of my wig, but it was gone. All that remained was my wig cap, still securely fastened to my head. Crap. The apartment I was in was shaped like mine, but somehow smaller. The room around me was dark. Most of the light was coming from a small table lamp next to the couch. I could see there was also a light on in the bedroom. Slowly, I realized I was surrounded by mixed martial arts gear. Used hand wraps laid piled in a laundry basket. Boxing gloves hung from a hook on the wall. Was that a Bowflex next to the couch? There was a freestanding punching bag in the corner, and I spied a grappling dummy in the bedroom. Whatever was done to that thing in the bedroom, I didn't want to know. I tried to sit up. Both my mouth and head felt fuzzy, and I could sense I wasn't done with the whole throwing up phase. The room was spinning, so I focused all my attention on the grappling dummy. What's your name, I thought. My name is Henry, and I'm a grappling dummy. Hi, Henry. I'm an undercover private detective, and things are not going well for me. What's your deal? I like boating, I'm gluten intolerant, and I live in the bedroom because I'm the inanimate boyfriend of the person who lives here. Well, nice to meet you, Henry. My head drooped down to my chest, and I must have passed out again. Regaining consciousness later, I found myself in the same position, but this time my neck was stiff and the bedroom light had been turned off. I heard someone's key fob beeping at the door. I tried to stand, but that was not in the cards right now. If I was about to get beaten up by a mixed martial artist, it would certainly not be a fair fight. Goodbye, I told Henry. It's been fun. Bye-bye, Luella. The door opened slowly. The hallway was brighter than the apartment, so the figure in the doorway was backlit. They were maybe five seven. I could make out two long braids, a slim build. The figure stepped inside, and I recognized her face. Isa. Hey, you're up, she said. Was that a friendly tone? Concern in her voice? She was carrying several heavy bags. I only hoped they did not contain several heavy weapons. She dropped them on the counter and reached into the nearest one. Gatorade? I shuddered to think of the stuff. The whole concept of Gatorade made me ill all over again. I knew it wasn't Gatorade's fault, the harmless, colorful drink for active and hungover people alike. No, this was definitely the work of George Stryker's coconut milk punch. Or more likely, the coconut milk punch was something else. What day is it? I managed to ask. 
It's late Monday night or early Tuesday morning, however you prefer to think about it. What? It's 1 a.m., Isa said. Water, please, I croaked. Tuesday. Isa filled up a glass from the Brita in the fridge. This broad was classy. She passed me the cool, filtered water, and I drank gratefully. I interpreted her kindness as a hopeful sign she wasn't going to kill me. Isa unpacked her bags, which turned out to contain groceries. Before I could set the glass down, I threw up the water. Who was the classy broad now? I'm so sorry, I told her. I was shivering and sweating. There had to be a word in German that meant more pathetic than pathetic that would be absolutely perfect for my present circumstances. You're pretty sick, she said, wiping up my water puke with a paper towel. Isa draped another blanket over my shoulders and handed me a cup of ice. I took it with a shaky hand and put an ice cube in my mouth to water down the taste of bile. Let's see how you do with the ice, then maybe we'll graduate you to saltines, she said. An incentive program, I said through the ice cube. I wanted to take my Luella teeth out so badly. You know, you're not the first person I've found passed out outside George Stryker's apartment, she said, pulling up a chair across from me. Isa brought out some knitting. It looked like she was about 75% done with an oversized gray cardigan. Jeez, MMA, knitting, saving passed out people? How many hobbies did this woman have? Who else, I asked. Oh, just about everybody. The last one on this couch was actually David G. If it makes you feel better, you don't look as bad as he did, she said, knitting away. How do you... I tried to continue, but my Luella teeth were becoming impossible to talk through. I caught myself slurring. I live right below him and I hear all, she said, finishing her row. You have my wig, I asked. It's in the sink. I hope you have another one. It got pretty slimy. Isa walked to the sink and held up the wig. From this angle, it resembled a very wet, very dead lab rat. Luckily, I'd packed three other wigs. I should go, I said. I tried to stand up, but my legs shook so hard I had to sit down again. She looked up from her handiwork. Can I ask you something? I nodded. Are you who you say you are? She squinted at me like she'd already answered her own question. Are you? I asked back. No. She answered straightforwardly, then resumed her knitting. I needed to get back to my bed. Can I borrow a hat? I asked. Issa didn't have one, so she lent me her MMA helmet. I popped it on, thanked her, and though it took me several minutes, managed to hobble out to the elevators. Issa was on eight. I pushed the down button and eventually made it to my apartment on the fourth floor. I walked straight to the bed and lay face down, not bothering to even take off the helmet. Isa knew too much. That wasn't necessarily a bad thing. That could be a very helpful thing indeed. Chapter 20 When I woke up again, it was Tuesday morning and I was still wearing the helmet. I smelled like hot trash. My head was pounding. I texted John to let him know I'd be taking the day off acting to focus on the investigation. He replied within seconds. Do you have a lead? I didn't respond. I removed the teeth, shook out my hair, and took a long, hot shower to try to scrub off the previous day. From the air sex to being followed to the kiss mishap to the George Stryker experience, I was just about done being Luella Van Horn. I decided I would spend the day as Marie. If anyone stopped me, I would tell them I was Luella's secretary. Even though we share the same voice, eye color, 
face shape and height, to my knowledge, no one has ever connected the dots. I'm telling you, sex appeal is the number one misdirect. If Elvis was walking around Memphis with frizzy brown hair and a chipped front tooth, he could be alive today and no one would recognize him. It was 10 a.m. by the time I got myself to the shared pantry on the second floor for some dry toast and a room temperature 7 up. For the record, I prefer cold, but it did the trick. I needed to learn more about George Stryker. I knew he'd put something in my drink the night before. Maybe he gave the same thing to David G. Having a floor to himself, George certainly had opportunity. But what could the motive be? I figured I'd take the day to search George Stryker's apartment. If there were drugs involved, I wanted to find them and take him down. By 10.45 a.m., I had made it up to the penthouse. Even if George Stryker was very late to work, he still would have been on set for hours by then. My plan was simple. Go to his apartment, then call for housekeeping. I had a story all prepared. I would tell them I was planning to lose my virginity to George Stryker that night, and I needed to decorate his room with candles. You'd be surprised what people will do when you say your virginity is on the line. As Marie, I'm not the most unfortunate-looking woman, but people want to help out where they can. I got to his door and dialed for housekeeping. Housekeeping and maintenance, said a guy with a gruff voice. Hi, I'm standing outside the penthouse apartment. I'm George Stryker's girlfriend, and tonight I'm going to lose my virginity, and I was wondering if you could let me in to... The gruff voice laughed at me and hung up. I must have been rusty. I blamed whatever was in that coconut milk punch. On to plan B, which was just breaking in. The hallway ran east to west. I noticed there were security cameras on the far northeastern and southwestern corners of the hallway, though I doubted they were functional. The police had checked the seventh-floor cameras the night David G.'s body was found, and it turned out they'd already been broken for a month. How convenient. All the apartments in this complex operated on a key fob system, which meant no lock picking. The choices were A, hack into the mainframe, or B, knock down the door with my brute strength. I was hoping for A. On a whim, I tried my key fob on his door. To my utter shock, it clicked open. The relief I felt at not having to physically bust down a door quickly faded. If my key fob opened his door, what did that mean for my door? What did that mean for any of the doors in this building? Is that how someone got David G's body into my bathtub? In the sober light of day, George Stryker's apartment looked even worse than it had the evening before. I nearly gagged at the smell. It was a delicate combination of rotten eggs, tomato paste, and Dolce and Gabbana light blue. How did he live like this? I needed to stay focused. I was here to look for drugs, most likely Rohypnol or Roofies, but I didn't want to narrow it down too quickly. In the kitchenette, I picked through what was left on the counter. Banana peels, mostly empty cup of noodles, old takeout containers, a sticky blender. I found one bottle of pills under a McDonald's bag. The label said Bupropion. I recognized that as the generic name for the antidepressant Wellbutrin. I looked at the big blue pills inside. Those were Bupropion, all right. Sometimes being an ex-social worker had its perks. I opened the fridge and then immediately closed the fridge. The mold stink hit me so hard I almost stumbled backwards. I was beginning to think there was no way George Stryker actually lived here. How was he not constantly physically ill? This seemed more like a staging area than anything else. 
Then on the couch, I saw the holy grail of private detective work, an open MacBook. I pressed the space bar with my knuckle. Right, of course it required a password. George Stryker's password would be something stupid. This guy lived in a constant state of being either drunk or hungover. It would be something easy to remember. Could it be as simple as one, two, three, four, five? And yes, it could. I was actually in. This guy was a piece of work. But the joke was on me because immediately porn began playing. Loudly. The thing about a paused porn video is, you know exactly when that person didn't need the porn anymore. I was getting nauseous again. On the screen, two women were collaborating on a joint blowjob for one man. Wow, George Stryker was quite the gentleman, wasn't he? I finally managed to close out the porn window, which caused three additional pop-up windows because, of course, George Stryker didn't pay for porn. The man practically made porn and still didn't see the value in his peers' work. Tisk tisk tisk. There were two notifications on his messages app. I clicked the green icon, carefully using the side of my knuckle. The first message was from Ethan at 7.11 a.m., and it was a photo of his erect penis. Yowza. Okay, maybe the 10-inch thing wasn't so far off. But why would Ethan send a dick pic to George so early in the morning? Were they involved? I guess I wouldn't put it past George Stryker to abuse those power dynamics. The next message was from Stephanie, sent at 7.35 a.m. It said, You get her? I'm no egomaniac, but I was pretty sure that her was me. I scrolled up for more context and found a series of not exactly friendly texts starting at 5.42 p.m. the night before. That must have been right around when he kicked me out. Stephanie Hilson texted, You can't have Ethan. George Stryker replied, You owe me. I don't owe you shit. Why is she here? I told you why. I want Ethan. You get her? Maybe Stryker did a favor for Stephanie, as Stephanie now seemed to owe him. And Stryker knew I was a private detective. He also wanted Ethan, and based on the photo, it looked like he was getting exactly what he wanted. But what kind of favor could Stryker have done for Stephanie? Even if it didn't involve David G., I had a feeling it had something to do with me. Detective work was kind of like camping, in that the major rule was leave no trace. I read these messages, and now they needed to be unread. That seemed simple enough. I looked through the menu of options. File, edit, view, conversations. Apparently there was no way to unread a text on a MacBook. What the hell was Tim Cook thinking? At this point, the whole avoid leaving fingerprints thing had gone out the window. I was in a full-blown panic. I clicked on conversations again. I scrolled through the choices, block person, FaceTime video, FaceTime audio, and that is when I accidentally clicked FaceTime audio. I was now somehow calling Stephanie. They say there are two main reactions to a stressful situation, fight and flight. I can promise you there's a third, and it's staying put and muttering, oh no, over and over again. Oh no, oh no, oh no, I muttered over and over again. My brain went blank. All the blood in my body rushed to my face. Of course she picked up on the first ring. What do you want, Stryker? She sounded like she was walking and fast. I tried not to make a sound. My shallow breathing was being picked up by the microphone. 
Freaking Tim Cook made a hypersensitive microphone, but no way to unread a text. That's practically immoral. I focused all of my remaining brain power on my hand. Hang up, I thought. Hang up. I felt like I was moving underwater as I placed my finger on the mouse pad and moved the arrow to the red button that would end the call. She was pissed now. Stryker, what the hell is going... Finally, I hung up. I closed the laptop and ran out of there. George Stryker would likely know someone had been in his apartment, but I hoped he wouldn't know it was me. From what it seemed, he had a healthy amount of enemies here. Chapter 21 I was shaking as I took the elevator down to the seventh floor. Now that I knew what my key fob was capable of on the penthouse, I wondered what else it could open for me. I knew David G. had lived on seven. John's list said his apartment was 7A. I walked down to the end of the hall and took a long look at his door. Sometimes when you're solving a murder case, it's easy to get lost in the nitty-gritty of the crime, the suspects, the clues. One can quickly forget about the victim, who had family and friends and a whole life ahead of him. It all hit me looking at David G.'s apartment door. Just over a week ago, he'd been alive, living in this apartment, coming and going through this very door. I suddenly felt so sad, I didn't know if I could handle going inside. I hoped my key fob wouldn't work. I swiped it in front of the detector, and the door clicked open. So much for high-tech security. What was the point of anyone closing their doors around here? Right away, the room smelled like musky cologne and unwashed gym clothes. Boy smells. His place was tidy, for the most part. An inside-out sweatshirt was laid over a chair in the living room. There was a dirty bowl and spoon in the sink. Someone had cleaned out the fridge, thankfully. In the cabinet, all that was left was an open box of Cheerios and a mostly full container of P.G. Tips black tea. Seemed a little British for a 21-year-old from Philadelphia. My mind went to Stryker. I got an eerie feeling standing there, like at any moment the ghost of David G. might walk in and tell me to get the hell out of his place. I really wanted to leave. But I didn't know when I'd find myself back there, so I figured it would be best to be thorough. Cautiously, I made my way into the bedroom. His bed was made. His clothes still hung in the closet. A framed photo of his family sat on top of his dresser. David G. must have been 15 years old in it. There he was, with his mother, his father, his older sister, and a guy with his arms wrapped around the older sister's waist. The guy seemed to be in his early 20s. I looked closer and immediately recognized those blue eyes. John. He looked like he was practically a member of the family. Why would he downplay their closeness the last time we spoke? I took a photo of the family picture, then wandered into David G.'s bathroom. There was a half-squeezed tube of toothpaste on the counter. His toothbrush was still in its holder. It made my heart sink. I felt the bristles and quickly pulled my hand away. It was wet. Whoa. Why was it wet? If David G. was the last person to use this toothbrush, it certainly would have been dry by now. He went missing over a week ago. Someone else had been in there and that someone had used a dead man's toothbrush. I became quite cold and found my hands wouldn't stop shaking. I needed to get out of there. 
I ran down the seventh floor hallway and pushed the down button for the elevator about 19 times. Come on, come on, come on. Finally, the doors opened and my breath caught in my chest. There in the elevator stood George fucking Stryker. I swallowed my scream. I'll get the next one, I said, my voice trembling. He'd seen me in his place. He was coming to get me. Whatever, he said, barely looking at me. There was no checking me out. There was no British accent. The elevator doors closed. It hit me. George Stryker did not recognize me as Marie. Without the wig and the teeth, he had no interest in me at all. I rushed to the stairs and promptly threw up my toast and seven up. Standing in the empty stairwell, I did some hasty mental math. If George was in the elevator going down, that meant he was coming from above. So either from the eighth floor or the penthouse. He couldn't have been coming from the penthouse. Surely I would have seen him or heard him. Could he have been hiding in a closet? Did I check the closets? If he had seen me searching through his computer, he would have recognized me in the elevator. So if he wasn't coming from the penthouse... He must have been coming from eight. The only two people who lived on eight were Issa and Ethan. And I had foolishly assumed they were both on set. Chapter 22 When I got back to my apartment, I decided I needed to lie face down on the couch for a while. In theory, this sounded wonderful. In practice, the couch smelled remarkably like the asses of the previous tenants, so I sat up and found myself brushing strange crumbs off my forehead. Upon closer inspection, they appeared to be Dorito remains. I'd never eaten Doritos on this couch. They must have been a previous tenant's Doritos. This apartment building officially sucked. In the before times of anxious restlessness, I would have watched an episode of Sex Island to feel better. But now that I was on the show, the magic was completely gone. David G.'s murder may have also tainted it for me, who's to say, really. But as if I was on autopilot, I turned on another episode, from the Monday before I arrived, and half-watched as Sarah and Tasha got into a screaming match about dog legs. Sarah was screaming that dogs had four legs, while Tasha insisted dogs had two legs and two arms. It barely registered that Sarah wasn't acting nice for once. My mind felt like it was on a demonic merry-go-round. There were just too many suspects. Stephanie, George Stryker, Ethan, Tasha, John, Issa, and the list went on and on. I wondered, was it normal in show business for everyone to seem capable of murder? How did this business even function on a day-to-day basis? I knew I needed to narrow down this list. I had a theory, but it didn't hold much water if there was no confession, no evidence, no nothing. I was starting to give myself a hard time, which doesn't help anyone, so I decided to take a long bath. I set my Luella teeth in a cleaning solution, brushed my backup wigs, and ordered takeout from a place called Beetle Bob's that specialized in something called a wet potato. From the photos, it looked like a baked potato covered in chili. I really hoped it was chili. The last thing I needed that evening was someone delivering me a baked potato with a steaming hot turd on top of it. Forty-five minutes later, the doorbell rang. My wet potato come to Mama. I answered the door wearing a robe and a towel wrapped around my head. The delivery guy handed me a greasy paper bag that was heavier than it looked, and I tipped him in cash. In my experience, that was when delivery guys typically walked away. But he remained standing in the doorway, patting down his pockets. 
He was wearing blue cargo shorts, which gave him quite a lot of pockets to pat down. Can I help you? I asked him, trying my best not to sound passive-aggressive. Um, one sec, he said. The delivery guy had finally found what he was looking for. Pulling out a black envelope from his back pocket, he looked at me sheepishly. It was the same type of black envelope I'd seen in the mailroom. Same thickness, same size. Someone told me to give this to you, he said. Who, I asked. Don't know, he said, averting his eyes. He had to know who. I gave him another twenty dollars. Who, I demanded. He looked to either side. Some guy. He was wearing a jacket with the hood up so I couldn't really see his face. I felt blood rushing to my head and suddenly my robe felt too hot. How'd he know you were coming to my apartment, I asked. The delivery guy started talking faster now. He was just hanging out in the lobby and I asked him where the elevators were. He asked me where I was heading so I told him your apartment number. I don't give him your name or anything. Beetle Bob's does not give away names. Listen, I got a bunch of other deliveries to make. Can I go? I was sweating all over. Sure, go. I shut the door and plopped the wet potato on the counter. I put the envelope on top of the refrigerator. I told myself not to read it until I had eaten something, because if I read it first, I would not be in the mood to eat at all. I ate my wet potato slowly, not taking my eyes off the top of the refrigerator. It turned out the wet part was some combination of lentils, two kinds of cheese, avocado, and a garlicky green sauce all on top of a baked potato the size of a kid's football. I didn't mind the taste, but it felt like the kind of food one stopped being able to properly digest after age 25. I finished eating and wiped my mouth on a paper napkin. It was time to read whatever was in that envelope. I grabbed it from the top of the fridge and laid it on the counter. Just like last time, Marie was written in neat white lettering across the front. Same handwriting as before, no address. I figured fingerprints were a lost cause with the delivery guy's hands all over it, so I opened it quickly, carelessly. Inside, there was a small black card. In black white writing, it said, Anyone get poisoned back in Staten Island? My stomach flipped. Staten Island was a deep cut, too deep. I had the nagging fear Taylor Bell was somehow involved in this. Last I checked, he was still in prison, but I learned to never underestimate what he was capable of. I didn't sleep more than two hours that night. Wednesday. That morning I woke up at 5 a.m. without an alarm. I had missed three vaguely threatening texts from John. You'll be on set today? See you on set today. Can you confirm that I'll see you on set today? The period at the end of the third text was unsettling, to say the least. Isa arrived at my door at 6 a.m. and I was ready to go. It seemed both of us had made a silent pact not to discuss what happened Monday night, just to carry on as usual. I was fine with that. My backup wig had been braided into pigtails for a previous undercover gig, a sting on a gymnastics coach, need I say why. So I left them in. Isa also had her hair in braided pigtails. Look at us, twinning, she said, high-fiving me. Isa seemed giddy. She practically galloped to set. You're going to meet the new guys today. There's two of them, and they are both very fine, if I may say so myself, Isa said, shimmying her shoulders. If this was the work of psychiatric medication, I intended to try whatever she was on. Oh, great, I said, lightly jogging to keep up with her. You know what? One of them is from New York. What's the borough you're from again? 
Manhattan. Why? I asked. Oh, okay. This guy's from Staten Island. Is that far from you? Not far at all. This has been chapters 19 through 22 of Murder on Sex Island, read by the author Joe Firestone, and that is me. This podcast is produced by Barry Finkel. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. The book will be on sale October 17th. Episode 7 comes out next week. What's going to happen next? The new wildcard contestant is from Staten Island. Isn't that where Luella is from? Till next time.